Superhuman effort on the part of Luger to kick out. Now here comes Luger. He feels it. He hears it. Got him down. Scott Hall is in. Scott Hall goes down. There they are. Outsiders are down. The Luger man is up. He's down. And the match continues. Luger caught him. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber, and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, going back in the time machine to August of 1997 for Volume 2, Part 1 of this month's show. Three volumes for you this month. Volume number one takes us to the WWF, looking at SummerSlam. Volume number three takes us to ECW, looking at Hardcore Heaven. We're here in Volume number two, looking at WCW. Volume 2, Part 1, which is this show, is going to be our review of Rope Wild, along with the for the Nitro 100 show. And Volume 2 Part 2 will take in the Clash of the Champions and, and the, all of the other TVs for the month. Uh, for now, I'm being joined by Dal Muir, text to the news. Dal, good evening. Hiya, Bob. Uh, Dal, kick us off with the news. Yep, starting off, Bob, a bit of a wacky month this month. Lex Luger won and then lost the WCW world title in the space of a week as uh, WCW almost chased their ratings high with a three-hour celebratory 100th episode of Nitro at the start of August. Uh, up against Raw in the new time slot, the new third hour of Nitro blew away Raw, to be quite frank. Um, Luger won the title at the conclusion of the show. Now, it was after a clean submission by Hollywood Hogan, um, but with plans in place already for Hogan for the rest of the year. The switch was short-lived. Um, Hogan won the title back at Road Wild the following Saturday. Now it's thanks to interference from a bogus sting. I Anderson has formally retired from wrestling, saying from complications from neck surgery around six months ago. Anderson, in one of the more memorable moments all year on Nitro, cut a great promo for offering a spot his spot in the horseman to Kurt Hennig, who accepted. He said that since the operation, it's left him with reduced control in his left hand to the point where he is unable to button up a shirt. It's assumed he'll be working in a backstage role going forward. And coming back on screen, WCW finally started moving towards a Sting Hogan match, uh, one that's now likely to take place at Starcade this coming December. They truncated the story for J.D. Dillon was um, going to take two months, apparently, to work out who Sting wanted to face. Um, it was ultimately going to lead to Hulk Hogan, but haven't drawn on announcing a date for the match yet. Um, at the Clash, uh, Bird 
or I believe it was a vulture or a raven bob, I'm not an ornithologist, uh, a bird was meant to fly down from the rafter with a message saying Hogan's soul, and the uh, bird dropped the message. But otherwise, plans in October will see Hogan rematch Roddy Piper in a steel cage, and expect Hogan to set out September and November's pay-per-views. Elsewhere, a particularly flat road while paper after some booking changes, so we say. The Steiners defeated the Outsiders by disqualification, not winning the tag titles. The Giant defeated Randy Savage, Kurt Haying defeated Diamond Dallas Page, and Ric Flair defeated Six. There were also wins for Harlem Heat, now heels being managed by Jacqueline Colan, Alex Wright, and the team of Steve McMichael and Chris Benoit. And at the class, Scott Hall and Randy Savage defeated Diamond Dallas Page and Lex Luger after Page accidentally hit a diamond cutter and Luger. Ric Flair and Kurt Hennig, they defeated Conan and Six. Raven defeated Stevie Richards and Chris Jericho defeated Eddie Guerrero. There were two title changes in the show. Steve McMichael is now the new US champion after beating Jeff Jarrett. And Das Wunderkid, Alex Wright, defeated the Ultimo Dragon for the TV title in the eight-man cruiser match. That was one of the team of Sikorsis, Silver King, Viano 4 and Viano 5. A weekly two-hour Thursday show on TBS has been commissioned, a move that will all but definitely mean this month's clash will be the last. WCW were and still are reluctant for the extra programme, but it's said that rights fees in the region are $12 million a year should ease things a little. Details are otherwise pretty difficult to pin down, although the previously axed idea of an NWO show to rival a WCW show has resurfaced. And as always in WCW back-to-back stage incidents, uh, Steve Regal has WCW future maybe in jeopardy after an incident on a plane. Rumours are he accidentally, quote-unquote, urinated on a flight attendant. Um, apparently a new policy in WCW will see all, quote, vulgar or suggested words banned from television. Hogan followed this news by calling Luger a piece of shit on the pay-per-view um, and we've likely seen the last of Kevin Green at least in a wrestling ring his deal with the San Francisco 49ers sees him banned from pro wrestling until 2002 and a reminder quickly that we're on Patreon for five bucks a month if you'd like to say thank you for our contributions to your podcasting lives or to get early access to shows you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20YRS links in the podcast description and on our website on to the ratings for the month it was a very good month if you're a WCW on August the 4th of the three hour Nitro up against Raw in its new 9 to 11 time slot Nitro today 4.4 to Raw's 2.7 on August the 11th the night after the pay-per-view Nitro today 3.8 to Raw's 2.9 August the 18th Nitro today 4 to Raw's 3.2 and on August the 25th with Raw preempted Nitro today 5 racing the highest ever viewership for a uh, a primetime cable wrestling show, I believe. Uh, Eclipse the Hogan and Flair clash from about three years ago, which is interesting. Nothing else. Right, two volumes, two parts for you across this volume this month. We're going to cut the other side of this noise, and it'll be me, Dell, and Eric, and we'll be reviewing the, the 100th Nitro along with the pay per view. Uh, and then in part two, we're going to come back and we're going to review the Clash of the Champions. <laughs> so, coming out of the news, a welcome to Eric Landrum. Eric, good morning. Hey, good to be with you, Bob. Um, Del, this first part of this show is really going to be over to you. Nitro 100, uh, we're going to have a kind of a three-hour show going up against the the first Raw of the 9pm to 11pm 
run. Uh, Dale, we're going to have a live reader of the show. Um, I suspect most of our discussion will be back-weighted towards the final hour, but take us through the, the first couple of hours. We'll discuss that, and then we'll pick off some of the more important segments at the end. We do indeed, Bob. Uh, celebrating 100th Nitro, and it's three hours long, just in case two just wasn't enough. Uh, we open up with Michael Buffer, as we tend to, with WCW. He welcomes us, and we get Peter Kimber's favourites, the Nitro girls. Um, first up, we've got Hogan and Bischoff there at first. Hats off to the, the guy in the front row. There's a sign basically spelling out Hogan, highlighting the fact that he can't act and he also fears Kevin Nash. Um, Hollywood talks about his 500,000 fat boys that are coming to Sturgis on Sunday to support him. And he's going to defend the belt later on against Lex Luger. The I've really called them Bra Fat Boys, whatever mm. Fat Boys, whatever that means. I think <laughs> I, it was I a was bit of motorcycle. But... Saying Fat Boys with the, the, the weird sound effect that came with it, but thanks for covering that, with Bob. Uh, I was looking for the nasty boys when he said that. In it. Um, but starting off with a bang, we get Mortis, and he's out to face my man, Gla- uh, uh, it's not Glacier, it's Kurt Hennig, which kind of kills the Mortal Kombat side there, but never mind. A poor man's Glacier, if you will. Um, Perfect's looking healthier than a few years ago, and he wins that with a perfect plex. We then got a Sting video, I um, him back to last month again. Um, it's basically just showing the, the full history of the transformation between Surfer Sting and now this kind of Brandon Lee Crow Sting that we've been seeing. We then get Hector and Chavo Jr. there to face Malenko and Jara, the new odd couple. Uh, Malenko's easily the, the most popular in the room. He wins it with the, the Boston Crab. Malenko really, really over these days. Um, Raven then does his best Kurt, uh, Kurt Cobain impression in the in the stands with Gene. He's still in silence, but we get Steve here again trying to get him to sign his latest contract. Um, for his efforts, he gets a spit and a shove from Raven, but then Stevie seems to be fighting back. He blocks a right hand, Raven smiles and then walks away. Um, Tony then hawks the Nitro Party Pack, if you can just make sure that you're writing in for that quickly. It does include wrestler recipes. Um, you can enter your own kind of Lee Martin weasel joke there, Lee Marshall weasel joke. Um, Giant is then out, he's getting ring pyro these days, it's basically some pyro coming out of the actual ring post, which looks pretty cool. He beats three local guys. Macho then switches for Diamond Dallas Page and calls it Giant for the aisleway. Um, Giant chases him back up the Back up the aisle, never comes to anything, but we'll see where that leads. Um, Lex Luger then gets the video treatment, and it's the public enemy out, they beat high voltage. The Nitro Girls are back out again, as we tend to see these days, so three years, God knows how long we'll see them in the night. Um, Alex Wright then cuts a promo in German before Mean quite quite harshly tells him to wrap the wiener splitzel. Um, he beats jo- uh, Scotty Riggs, head into our two, and we hear quickly for Lex Luger. He's building up his title shot later on in the night, and then Benoit and Six get a decent little match. Never want to let kind of good things keep on as they are. We then get a hokey ending, a la WCW. Jeff Jarrett comes out, takes out Benoit for the DQ, and then Mongo comes out to, to deal with Jeff Jarrett. We then get um, Booker T. He's a quick match with Vincent or Virgil, whatever you want to call him. No one really cares. Um, Paige, Diamond Dallas then comes out with Mean Gene. Diamond Dallas pretty much goes full all kind of white meat babyface and actually cuts a pretty decent interview with Gene. We then get Barbarian. He's out to face Wrath. Again, no glaze here with 
obviously be building up to him as a main event. I don't know whether it will just be slightly before the world title match, but Clay's are surely coming. Um, Wrath wins this one. The Steiners and I, but it's not just Rick and Scott. They're actually in bed these days with Ted DiBiase, as I'm sure we'll come on to talk about. Teddy almost turns babyface and almost does a decent job at it as well. He's saying he's going to be disassembling the NWO. He cuts himself off, quite funnily, before he mixes up WCW with WWF. We get the World Wrestling... Uh, 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 part of that, he did quite well, though. Um, the Outsiders came out square off with the Steiners. They built a match for, for Sturgis at the weekend. Nitro Girls, Lee Marshall, you know where this is going, sense the, the apathy from me. Um, we got a quick one for Conan, who beats Psychosis. And Ray Jr. hobbles out like a lamp of the slaughter. He's out with crutches. Conan kicks one of them away, but he gets blasted with the other one. And it apparently seems that Ray Mysterio Jr. is fit for Sturgis to face Conan. Um, everybody calm down. It is now time. My man is here just in the headline spot here to It's, well... I would say Ernest Miller and Glacier, but it's pretty much Sub-Zero and Jax. They're going up against Damien and the Silver King. It's an utterly commanding performance from Glacier, obviously, who then goes to Ernest Miller to get the win. But still, what a climax for her too. Well, Gene Oakland, you know, I've been on the inside of the NWO looking out, and now I've been on the outside of the NWO looking in. And there's an old cliche that says, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. You gotta back up, take a deep breath, and take a look at the big picture, and take a look at what's really important. You know, Gene Okerlund, that I grew up in professional wrestling, that my father died in the ring in July of 1969, and I vowed then that I would live up to his name and his reputation and become a star in this business. I did that, but somewhere along the way, I lost track of the things that were really important. I got caught up flying around in Lear jets and limousines and being a big wheel. I used to live by another cliche. Every man has his price. But what that is is every man pays the price for the choices that he makes. I've made some bad choices. Well, that ends now. The buck stops here. You have seen the error in your ways, Mr. DiBiase. Exactly, Gene. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. And I don't expect the Steiner brothers to just accept me on blind faith. I've got to prove myself to them and to everybody else. And we start at Sturgis Saturday. I start tearing down what I helped build in the NWO by ripping the heart out of the NWO and taking the world wrestling... You've got, you're talking That's about right. the New World Order, right. Paul and Nash, That's WCW right. Tag Team Champions. That's right. You're going to start to dismantle the team by team. right here know about pride and tradition. They're going to take those titles Saturday. Hey, yo. All right, for a minute there, I thought we lost it. Hey, yo. Enough of your sob story there, DiBiase. All hail the Outsiders. You can answer them if you want. Now, just like everybody here in Michigan, we know that the Einsteiners are really good. But Hall and Nash, 
We're better, and these gold belts prove it. I think the bit man is going to talk. Hey, DiBiase, this goes out to you, Pumpkinhead. When we said we were NWO for life, we meant it. You must not understood the for life part, because at this point, you join the Steiners, you're a dead man. Teddy. Listen, you two knuckleheads, remember one thing. I know more about you two than anybody else, and they're going to know it when they climb in the ring. You can bet your bottom dollar. Everybody knows the only reason the Steiners got you is so they had somebody to read the menus when they're on the road. Yes, and at this point we'll, we'll just have a, a quick little chat just to, to, to break up Dell's voice, if nothing else. Um... Eric, any any major thoughts on the, on the first couple of hours? Like it, 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 you know, WCW had a lot of time to fill, um, but I actually I think given that we've you know, we've seen when they moved to two hours, they've had significant pacing problems. I actually think they did quite a decent job of it throughout this entire show. Yeah, this wasn't uh, this wasn't unwatchable at all. The, the first two hours moved pretty quickly. Uh, they mixed up uh, between video packages, short matches, some longer matches, entrances, that kind of thing. It really did move quickly. I think you know, uh, knowing how to pace uh, for uh, for a longer show probably helped them out here, and just giving a little bit more uh, time to some folks. I don't remember the last time High Voltage got a full pyro entrance, so maybe using this time to build uh, some folks that they think uh, would be. Uh, credible people down the road, but I think more to the point, other than the uh, Benoit uh, six match, there was really nothing memorable in the ring, which there usually isn't on Nitro anyway, but yeah, Jeff Jarrett poops the party again and robs us of six and Benoit. Um, and so I think we're going to talk about the DiBiase um, stuff in more detail, but other than, than six versus Benoit showing some uh, credible pairing down the road and the DiBiase thing, nothing memorable, but a fun watch. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they they did repeatedly warn us of adult themes at the pay-per-view at the weekend, um, which just led me to believe they were kind of pre-warning us there may be racial undertones in the crowd was the only thing I could kind of deduce from all of that. Um, I think Alex Wright coming out and dancing with the Nitro Girls may be the best thing he's ever done. <laughs> um, just <laughs> That was just brilliant. Um uh, yes, other than that and Hogan saying, I've got 500 frat boys <laughs> cheering me on, whatever that means. Um, yes, Delt, Delt, anything else in the first couple of hours before we get to the DBRC segment? I'll, I'll be honest, I was kind of worried coming in when I seen it was the three years long and I thought it was really going to drag, but they did actually do a pretty decent job. As this, uh, his last one says about the video package, he's going to broke it up well, complicated guys are getting some better entrances. It, it almost makes him feel like pretty big time. Um, I don't know whether there's legs in it to be dragging it out for three years going forward, but as a one-off, I'm, I'm pretty decent on it. Yeah, it's, it, it's a weird thing. I, I just wonder whether Nitro seems to flow better when they've got something bigger to build towards. Like uh, As much as we often used to criticise how much they discussed Hogan and Piper at the back end of last year, those were some of the better Nitros, in part because when they just had random filler matches, the announcers could speculate and look ahead and tell us what's coming up, and I think they kind of have that going in their favour as well. Mm. Um, but I think, they'll probably, the, the, as we said, the, probably the, the biggest thing of the first couple of hours was the, the reintroduction of Ted DiBiase. Um, I, I, I am. I was then, and I am at this point. You know, having 
kind of you know, not long after the pay-per-view. I am a bit sceptical as Ted DiBiase, the babyface manager. Mm. I'm kind of sceptical of babyface managers in general. I just don't think they really add much. But when you add in the fact that the Steiners are probably over with, with most crowds. But I mean, any time that, that Rick Steiner comes in, you hear the... You hear the barks, and I mean, they're, they're as good an act as you're going to get for character-wise and kind of mixing with the audience. But then when you add in DiBiase, it almost just kind of blurs the lines and just like, are we meant to still cheer them? Are we meant to boo them now that DiBiase's there? But as I said in the, the run-through, he did do a decent job, and we will obviously hear the promo when we come out of this, but he, he did a decent job. It's just, I noticed it more as we'll come on to talk about it, it's Sturgis when it's just it, it just seems really out of place. It's it just seems a little bit of miscasting for me. But I mean, they're, they're not exactly renowned for talking. Um, you never really hear too much with Scott Rick whenever he talks. Kind of just sounds like an overgrown child. So it could kind of work, but I, I don't know. It's it's a funny one to pick up. Uh, uh yeah, it's a weird pairing. Ted DiBiase's kind of been mailing it in as a manager uh, for a while now, uh, even even before he came over to the WCW. Uh, but you know, I'm more, <laughs> more to the point here. If we're gonna if we're gonna pretend here that Ted DiBiase has jumped ship or has had a moral uh, dilemma and has decided to hop over to the, the the good side, and everybody's just gonna forgive this guy, the guy that bankrolled the NWO, the guy that probably for all intents and purposes is the reason the NWO was able to gain traction because they had financial backing. The reason WCW is in the pile of shit it's in right now from a storyline wise is because of Ted DiBiase and now he's just going to say oops sorry guys my bad and <laughs> you know I made, I made a mistake here let's uh, let's let's uh, let's unwind it all. Yeah that, that's the weird part here so it was just really just seemed like a last minute decision or something that wasn't explained very well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what DBRC's contract is like, but I'm of the impression that they, of the impression, I and mean, they clearly did bring him in to, to basically be the the mouthpiece of the NWO, and then Eric Bischoff kind of went, well, I kind of like the idea of doing that, and then it turned out Bischoff was really good. Bischoff actually probably better than DBRC in the same role, and so they kind of just pushed DiBiase to the side, left him off of TV for a while. I'm guessing it got to the point where like, well, we've got to bring him back and do something. Mm-hmm. Um, whether this was it, I don't know. Um, but him, you know, we'll kind of get to it more on the pay-per-view. Him being the Bayface manager, I just don't think fits. I don't think Steiners are the kind of act that needs one. Um, and yeah, like you could move into the announcer's position, but that's pretty backed up right now. And, you know, there's still some thought Kevin Sullivan could could join the announcing team, amongst other things. Um, it just doesn't quite click for me, really, this DBRC thing. I guess we should give it some time. But I also kind of would say there might be some other acts that could more benefit more from an act like DBRC in a Bayface or a heel role. Um, but I guess they just thought he was too important. But yes, Eric, I think you're completely right. Um, the thought of, you know, DBRC's back, oh, let's forget the fact that he was a, a big part of the NWO's rise. You know, it's it's that attention to detail thing again. But I, you know, I don't know whether your average person remembered, so maybe not. Um, Del, take us through the final hour. Um, we, we've got a, a flare p- a page match as the tag match and then a couple of big segments at the end. Of course there is. Um, three, Eric Bischoff. 
comes out to start, he's talking to JJ Dillon. Um, he promises no more interference from Larry Zabisco or there'll be a foot between his eyes. Um, JJ's got a couple of, couple of spots, and that's we'll kind of tie it in once we talk about the second one as well. Um, and then we come on to the, the semi-main, as you said, Bob, we got a pretty decent left match between Rick Flair and Diamond Dallas Page. Again, just harking back to earlier on with with Ben won six, though, we get a surprisingly hokey finish at the end. Um, it's a DQ in the end due to the interference of a foreign object from Kurt Hennig. And uh, talking about the tag match, Bob, know that three hours far too long for a wrestling show, really, but there was a tag match. Don't really know who it was, don't really know who won. But, um, yeah, um, JJ then comes back out after this. Steady up talking to Bischoff, he's talking about Sting this time. He talks about a contract offer for him. Digs up Sting, says he means a lot to WCW, tries to get him on board, but the man himself arrives from up high, he comes into the ring, wraps up the contract and disappears. A um, couple of these segments, Bob, the JJ stuff, first with Bischoff and then with Sting as well. Don't really know where they're going with us, but what do you think? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I like Dylan, it's it's the Nick Bockwinkle role, mm. I like Bockwinkle in that role as well, you know, the the authority figure and we, we're seeing that in in the wwf this month as well we saw um you know we're going to see that i think with sergeant slaughter uh is basically where they're going um and i i i, I liked botwinkle in this role that is kind of untouchable in this you know if all else botwinkle's word goes and i like that um, the stuff with sting it's a nice idea but as i understand it I believe their plan is that they're going to have Dylan do this every single week with a increasing name up until the point they finally get to Hogan. The problem is, is that the crowd are already just thinking, well, Sting isn't going to deal for anything less than Hulk Hogan. So there's no point in going, us going through the next four weeks going, do you want to face Savage? No. Do you want to face Hall? No. Do you want to face Nash? No. Hogan? Oh, yes. You know, and they're going to try and wait for that until December. Um, it's a nice idea. I don't know that it looks... I don't think it was a great visual or, or a great kind of framework that, you know, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, was this big name that they were announcing and bringing in, you know, six weeks ago. Um, and then J.J. Dillon comes in and says, do you want to face Mr. Perfect? Do you want to face Kurt Henning? And thing just rips it up. I don't know. That's the best framework mm. for a, a supposedly hot act. Um... But yeah, like I, 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 I like the idea. I just don't know whether it's going to be able to last as long as they want it to. Eric, thoughts on all that? Fucking burying Kurt Hennig right there. Um, everybody knows it's going to be Sting Hogan. I, I understand a segment like this in a three-hour nitro to fill some time. Uh, JJ Dillon is out twice. That's twice as much as we need JJ Dillon, I think. But um, this was fine on a three-hour nitro. But man, if they're going to do this every week for Eight, nine, however long weeks until we get to Hogan, uh, that's going to be that's going to be tough. Uh, I think by the Nitro after Road Wild, everybody the crowd was chanting Hogan, so they'll probably uh, put this to bed uh, sooner rather than later. But yeah, this is this is fine. Three hour Nitro, uh, but man, to be to be Kurt Hennig and to, to hear your name called and that's that's the first in a string of people that are supposed to be escalated from. My goodness. 
Yeah, they should have said, you know, do you want to face Glacio? Or, you know, you want to... No, that's wanna, a climax, surely. You, you want to you, you go for a tune-up, you know, you want to face Mongo, you know, that kind of thing. Like, start low. Yeah. yeah, you know, don't don't risk a big match against Hedick. A single deal on Mongo, you know, that kind of thing. That was think of all this. I, I, I kind of get J.J. Dillon's role. Um, he, he is respected. I would say he's obviously got a lot of history with back office stuff, whether down here or up there. Uh, it makes sense to have him on TV because when you're dealing with somebody where the most overact is probably still Ric Flair, um, it makes a lot of sense to have JJ in that kind of that kind of role. He does have the authority to get a bit of respect for the fans. You would think, from a storyline point of view, he would have it for the roster, and then matching him up with Bischoff could be a decent. A decent thing, but it's they're struggling to get the payoff. But as you say, if, that, if this is the the plan going forward that they want to do this every week, I don't think the most hardened Fort Horseman supporter would kind of encourage JJ Dillon coming out every week and just talking legalese and contracts. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's got it's got potential. It's just again with WCW, it's just you worry where it's going to go. Because I mean, a couple of months ago. We were looking at James Dillon coming in and he was untouchable and he was this this person that was just going to command respect and any kind of hokiness is going to be coming out. That would have a lot more a lot more grounds if it wasn't for the fact that every match that we seem to get on TV, if it's got any kind of level of, any level of investment, it ends in a screwy finish. Um, but I don't know, we'll see where it goes. See where it goes. Yeah, just, you know, Dumb Babyface is a bad look. We'll talk about that in a bit. Um, if if Dylan comes out for the next six weeks and keeps getting rejected, he's going to look like a dumb baby face. Mm. And also, we talk about that authority. Um, if Sting keeps rejecting him, um, that's not a good bit of presentation. All right, Dal, to the main event. Yep. Uh, next up, main event time. Michael Buffer is out again when the fuck knows what is on his head. Um, but he is out. We get the main event's most it's pretty much half an hour before the end of air, so it looks pretty decent for a clean finish, but we'll see. Um, it's a slow, kind of cagey start. Obviously, you're getting Hogan in here, you're getting Luger. It's obviously going to be a bit of a slow start. There is a few hope spots for Luger, but Hogan gets the um, the leg drop. And then the match we pretty much know where this is going. But Luger kicks out. The NWO then, unsurprisingly, start to run in, but Pee Wee Anderson lets it slide. Lex then clears the ring, get back into the action, and Luger gets the torture rack on. Hogan is up. We get, apparently, a submission, and we have a new world heavyweight champion. Um, after the match, it almost get, looks like what Luger thought he was going to get a couple of years ago at Mania 10, where the, the locker room empties, they're in there celebrating... Tony starts to kind of sum up the night, looking back at what we've seen. They big up the centenary. We cut backstage and we see Lex Luger in the locker room doused in champagne. We then cut to the NWO's locker room and Hogan's in there flipping tables. And my last note, Bobby, Glacier's time will surely come. Well, he was in the locker room, wasn't he? Uh, he wasn't. Well, he was one of quite, quite a few people. I thought. Well, I thought the, the, the best little attention to detail in the celebration was a giant a pie in the uh, <laughs> a pie. Well, I don't really know what it was. It was whatever to try and remove the spray paint off the front of the title belt. I like how they had that ready. Yeah. I thought that was a really nice little small little touch. Eric, what do you think of this uh, this main event presentation and the title change? This is pretty good. Uh, uh, that match went about twelve minutes long, which for any Hogan or Luger match. Yeah, even with other good wrestlers, would be probably too long. But no, they they had a good match. Good Hogan 
kind of does his big lumbering spot. Luger does his big lumbering spot. And, you know, the, the ending really, really, really wanted to be one of those WCW clusterfucks that ruins the whole thing, but they just couldn't pull it off. It was a good, well-executed ending. Um, and, and this just shows you got to watch the end of Nitro. Even if 9 out of 10 ended the DQ, the 10th one will end in a huge title change that sees Hogan tapping out. So, you know, this at least for for people who are skeptical in Nitro or are starting to get skeptical in Nitro, this is something that I think is a is a, an interesting little wrinkle. Um, yeah, this was really good, and I think it, it was smart for WCW, smart for the viewers, and, and really well executed. You know, Hogan's still got big matches in him. Yeah, if you can present one out of every ten main events with a clean finish, it almost excuses the other nine. Right. Um, almost. Dale, what do you think? I'm more on side with, with Landstrom. I must admit, I thought they really did well. When you're putting Luger in a main event, you kind of know what you're going to get. When you put Hogan in a main event, you know what you're going to get. The two of them, dare I say, you could easily forgive folk for, for tuning out. and say, I know what's going to happen. And then when Hogan hits the leg drop, you think you know what's coming. And they, they actually nailed it. Um, Luger gets the right. There's a new champion. It's a centenary show. It's three years long. We get a title change. You get the afters at the end. Um, I was thinking it was maybe just going to try to fill time, but they did still run over into the into the fourth hour, so it was nice to see all that. It's one of the few few occasions, certainly in TV, where WCW gets a, a big match and they kind of do it justice. Um, obviously, we'll come into what happens at the pay-per-view at the weekend, but... Um, for what it was, I thought they pretty much went out with a bang that they did kind of deserve. They did well. Yeah, they did. Um, they took a big match. They presented it. They built it. Um, you know, I mean, to a, to a point that they announced it last week, but it had been coming for a while. Um, in some ways, Luger feels like he's been owed a, a full-on title shot for about six months, but the introduction of Roddy Piper probably pushed that back. Um, but the match was better than I think anyone would have expected it to. It was a bit punch and kicky, but that's all you're going to get from, from Luke and Hogan to a point. Um, the crowd were really hot, as they were all night, which helps. Um, and then, yeah, they, they, they kind of teased the, the big run-in, and, you know, they were foreshadowing, if nothing else. Luger fights them off, puts Hogan in the rack, clears the sheet. Luke wins the title, and I'm like, okay, this is... This is different, and you know they did the big reaction, the big celebration, and the big kind of the ring filling with guys, and you know it looked really good. Like the presentation after the match was great. Also, we had the all the guys in the ring. It made it look like a big deal that Luger won the title. It made the title feel important again, which it has not done for a while. And we go backstage, and for the first time probably in a long while, we see Hogan get a beating and actually respond to it. And that's, pro- you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to flip on that criticism once we get to the pay-per-view. But we don't see that very often. We don't see genuine vulnerability from the NWO, certainly not from Hogan. He'll generally brush off shit like this. Um, and, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know whether now's the best time to discuss it, but I'll, I'll throw it out there. Eric, I mean, what was the, you know, I, I think it was obvious that, you know, Luger, ha- had it not been for Raw being... Uh, Moved to nine to eleven, and Nitro being you know three hours, and this being the hundredth show, and then wanting to have a big thing to to carry out the raw rating. I don't know that Luger Hogan even happens on this night. I suspect it just happens at the pay per view. Um, but I I quite like this title change, but I, I don't like what it meant for the pay per view itself, Eric. That absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned the belt feels important, and and. Really, I think this makes the belt feel feel extremely important because it's the only thing that Hulk Hogan has reacted to. Uh, he's he's had a lot of losses in the last 
in his NWO tenure. He lost to Piper. He and Rodman lost. He's had a lot of losses, but he's always brushed it off because he's always had that belt. He's always had that gold. The minute he loses that, you see the real dark side of Hogan. Um, not the 95 dark side, but the, the NWO dark side of, of Hogan. And, and it makes the belt feel like it's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that's holding the NWO together. Um, is that world title? Uh, I, I thought that was really good. But yeah, this killed the pay per view. I, I almost wish they would have flip flopped them and had Luger get screwed here and, and win at the pay per view. But uh, I guess to pop a rating here and to help Nitro, they couldn't do it that way. Don't no. pretty much agree with everything Eric said. There, um, it felt it felt big, and I think a big part of it is that acknowledgement that you were talking about, Bob. What do you see it actually meaning Tommy Hogan? Whether that was deliberate with the afters at the end. But it's certainly how it came across. Um, Luger gets his moment. It feels like a big deal. It feels like oh, the NWO actually could be crumbling. We might be seeing this coming to a, coming to an end. It's already split into a couple of seemingly different factions already. We get the acknowledgement for Hogan. He doesn't just brush it off as we've seen with Piper a couple of times, and then as as Lastrum said with the Rodman stuff as well. But um, it, it does kind of come with a tinge. I think if you'd have spoke to us on the the Tuesday night. After this, we've probably been a bit more positive about it come the Saturday night. But um, for where it is at the minute, it feels like a big moment. It feels like they popped the rating as they, as they intended to do. Luger gets his moment, who has actually been a bloody good worker in the last couple of months. He's really put in shifts. And um, for what it was, as I say, I think they nailed it. Yeah, and it is weird being sat here now. Like after this show, but also after the pay-per-view, because I think, Dale, you're right, if we'd have been reviewing this before the pay-per-view, so it would have been at the end of the month, we could have been having discussions about potentially what might happen going forward in terms of the, you know, the the, the changing dynamics between a, a titleless NWO against, you know, WCW that's now resurgent with Luger on top. Um, and that, you know, that's kind of what makes it, you know, kills what happens at the pay-per-view so much, that they basically just undid all of the good work they did here yeah, the weekend. It's just that's really strange. Um, but yeah, I thought for the match was really good. It was a really good, well done title change, and the presentation afterwards on both sides was excellent. The NWO stuff and Hogan flipping off and saying, "Okay, it's it's on the weekend," and with Luger and the big celebration in the locker room with Giant and the Steiners and Mysterio and Benoit and Mongo and Glacier and and guys like that. I just thought they got that right. It just kind of makes you feel a bit more depressed about what they do at the, uh, at the pay-per-view. Um, we will move on to the pay-per-view. I've actually got to fill in some backstory because there's a lot going on here. Um, so at some point in the run-up to the, the show, it may have been the day of, it may have been the day or so before, um, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash went to Eric Bischoff and said, there's been too many title changes recently. It's devaluing the titles. Now, there's there's something to be said for well they timed that quite conveniently given that this was the show where they were finally planning to lose the, the titles to the Steiners too, um, but ostensibly this paper was there was meant to be a trio of title changes in, in happening. Hogan was going to defeat Luger to win back the title. The Steiners were going to defeat uh, defeat Hall and Nash to win the tag titles and do what they should have been doing for about the past three or four months, move Hall and Nash away from the tag division, so Hall can do something and Kevin Nash can face Giant, which is a program they think is going to do a lot of money. And they're also going to have Chris Jericho beating Alex Wright to win back the, the Cruiserweight title or whatever one it was. Um, but, you know, Hall and Nash went to Bischoff and said, this is a good idea. Bischoff kind of agreed. 
And so they basically, I believe, then came up with the idea on the day of the show that actually we're not going to change any of the titles. Which, you know, on on, on balance, if it, if it meant Luna keeping the title and the others keeping the title, might have been a good thing. Um, but unfortunately, hadn't really got anything in place for what those match finishes might be. Um, and then Hulk Hogan arrived, and he's like, well, you know, I'm winning my title back, brother. You know, so, so that got put back in place as well. Um, but they basically went in, and not that the, 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 the right Jericho match is so important, but they basically went into the show with a title change plan with the Steiners uh, and Hall and Nash, where um, they now didn't have a finish because the Steiners were going to win cleanly. And then a main event where, best I can tell, they didn't have a, a planned finish in place for Hogan winning the title back. And so we're going to see how that all plays out. Del, if you can kick us off with the results. Yeah, just in case anybody was in doubt that the C and WCW stand for contingency. That's certainly been put to bed. But um, results. Start off, Bob, we've got the Harlem Heat. Booker T and Stevie Ray, they defeated Vicious and Delicious, as they're now known, Buff Bagwell and Scott Norton. We had Conan beating Rey Mysterio Jr. in a quote-unquote Mexican death match, which we'll come on to talk about. Uh, Steve McMichael and Chris Benoit, the Horsemen defeated Jeff Jarrett and Dean Malenko. Alex Wright retained against Chris Jericho, as we just spoke about, for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Ric Flair defeated six. Kurt Hennig beat Diamond Dallas Page, the Giant beat Randy Savage, and in the semi-main, the Steiner brothers did defeat the Outsiders, but it was inevitably by disqualification, so the Outsiders retained the tag titles. In your main event, WCW World Heavyweight Championship, the new champion Lex Luger was indeed defeated, and Hulk Hogan is now the new, again, WCW World Heavyweight Champion. Alright, what do you think of this show? Not good. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if this show should have just, in hindsight, been cancelled and all the goodwill that was built up from the three-hour Nitro uh, could have could have lasted a little bit longer. But this show was just filled with contradictions and questionable booking and matches that didn't appear to be booked at all and poor to very poor wrestling by not very poor wrestlers. Um yeah, just mm, endlessly skippable um, and uh, uh, just kind of depressed that uh, we have to go through it in great detail. <laughs> Which we will doubt. I think I'm going to be uh, having to pull a rabbit at the heart as well as my positivity card for this one. Um, yeah, there really is not a lot good on this at all. We, we kind of get the usual WCW show in it some kind of flashes of positivity in the undercard. Um, a couple of really, really good guys just not having really good matches. There are a couple of tag team matches that will come on if it would have been far superior with singles. It, it does as WCW seemingly does every month where it just dampens it come the end of the night. But, um, yeah, I'm sure we'll come on and speak to it in great, very, very harsh light. Yeah, I uh, I don't think there was anything individually that was terrible on the show. There are a few things that got bloody close, um, but you add them all up and you end up with a pretty terrible show. Um, 
Yeah, let's find out, shall we? Uh, we're in Sturgis. It's very wild, so we're outside. We're back where we were last year. You've got the, the kind of mountainside in the background, the big hillside, and it's light outside. Uh, lots of people, they estimate between six to 8,000. Obviously, you know, Tony Schiavone said there were 20,000 people there. Yeah, it's not like the time they said there was 100,000 people on Daytona Beach, and there was about seven, but, you know. Um, it's light outside. Every, a lot of people on motorcycles expect a lot of noise throughout the show. Uh, Tony, Bobby and Dusty on the call. It's the same setup as last year. We have a vicious and delicious Marcus Bagwell and Scott Norton versus Harlem Heat, Booker T and Stevie Ray. The ring setup is just like it was last year as well. You've got the ring basically on a platform. So from the, the ring apron to the floor, it's probably about a 12... 14 feet drop, I'd say, something like that. Uh, Heart of Heat are out first. So far, no reaction at all compared to what they received 12 months ago. Bagwell ducks a side kick for two hip tosses and a drop kick. Norton hits a sidewalk slam on Stevie Ray, who responds with a jumping side kick. Norton blocks a suplex, book a side sl- slides out, goes again, hits it. Bagwell gets thrown over the top. Uh, yep, same bit with the uh, apron on the platform. Uh, aerial view from the helicopter makes the crowd look far less impressive than it probably is. Out comes Jacqueline. The engines start revving up. Bagel hits a crossbody for a two. Jacqueline just stands by the heat, and that's her way of saying she's managing them now. Bagwell slides out of a powerbomb from Booker and then hits one of his own. Norton hits a shoulder breaker. Jacqueline gets on the apron and onto Norton's shoulders. Booker T hits a jumping sidekick, then a scissors kick, and then gets the win with Jacqueline holding down Norton's foot. Del? I'm, I'm going to be a bit more clear about this finish here because it genuinely confused me. Jackie holds the foot down for the finish, but she holds the foot down under the rope. I genuinely thought she was trying to make delicious and vicious one because she was holding it under the rope. Surely the ref's going to see it's under the rope, but... I think that was the least of the, the issues we had. We, we weren't expecting the strongest start. I'm not a big fan of the stuff just set up as it is, but when you see Booker in there, it looks as if he could be a star. Bagwell already looks as if he thinks he is the world's biggest star, but um, you throw in Flash Norton and Stevie Ray, it, it just really it kind of feels like anchors, and they just kind of hold the other two down. Um, it was really positive just kind of seeing... Booker T and Stevie Ray and no getting the reaction that he did last year because it's probably as big a reason as any as I put it forward for worst show of the year but um, the fact that we can throw Jacqueline in as well and it still doesn't get too much of a bad reaction considering you've got a field full of bikers then that's something but um, the finish for me just killed it I thought they, they had a decent idea but it just looked terrible on TV for me Eric I think the first three or four minutes of this match was probably the best in-ring uh, content of the entire night, uh, especially with Buff and, and Booker. They had a really nice exchange, and then Stevie and Scott Norton uh, just kind of beat the dog shit out of each other for about 90 seconds. And then the match pretty much died. Uh, you could tell they lost their place about halfway through. There was a, a powwow with Nick Patrick, and I think it was uh, Stevie and Norton in the middle of the ring where they were just like, where do we go? Then they went into that cluster finish. Uh, the match also had a weird dynamic because it seemed to me that uh, – Buff and Norton were playing the face in peril throughout the match, and, and Harlem Heat cheated to win, and just a really strange dynamic. I don't know, just classic WCW booking or not paying attention or, or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, fine fine uh, beginning to this match, kind of devolved into a clusterfuck, uh, set, the, set the tone for the night, I think. But, yeah, good to see Jackie with the Heat. I think that can be a good pairing. 
Yeah, I was under the impression the Heat were baby faces, um, but Jacqueline is a heel and she aided them in victory in a heelish manner. Uh, maybe the heels again. I don't know. Like maybe, maybe this. Well, you know, maybe the booking for this show was we're going to get the tag titles off of Hall and Nash. We'll give them to the Steiners, and then we'll stick the heat up against them. And that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, you know, they kind of failed in part two of that story, I guess. But um, yeah, you know, I, it's difficult to say whether Jacqueline going with the heat is a good or a bad thing because I've got no idea where the tag team division is going right now. I think once they can work that out, they might have a a better indication of where they're going. But, yeah, the match was okay. Um, it wasn't particularly memorable. Um, Jacqueline comes out and then gets involved. And then, you know, Norton, who, you know, Norton's leg probably weighs more than Jacqueline does. Jacqueline gets on his shoulders and you're like, you know, maybe she's choking him, I guess. But, like, that didn't really stick either. We had the idea of Jacqueline's meant to be, like, super strong, I suppose. Um Anyway, let's move on. We cut away from the ring. We're still outside, and DBRC is doing a web chat with the Steiners. And what the fuck do the Steiners look like? <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll move on to Kyle versus Rey Mysterio Jr. in a Mexican death match. Speaking of other stories coming into the show, Rey Mysterio got written off of TV uh, sometime in June, I think. Um, Kevin Nash squashed him in two minutes because that that makes sense. They wrote him off essentially so he could go away and rehab a knee injury because they, I think, I believe they'd talked about him having surgery and then he'd opted against it just for a period of rehab with the idea he was going to get a couple of months off now anyway they had some stuff they wanted to film down in Mexico plus some shows that they were trying to sell I believe in the in the California area so they kind of brought Mysterio back early and brought him back for the show early but Mysterio's knee as it turns out or as it turns out as it was um, just wasn't in great shape so the match they had planned for this they uh they couldn't particularly do. But they took the real-life knee injury and bundled it into a story. Let's see how that story played out. Mysterio opens with a drop kick. Conan drops Mysterio off with a turnbuckle, then hits him in the back of the head with a clothesline. Mysterio drops to the platform to nurse his knee. The announcers are questioning how fit he is, which sets up well for Mysterio's knee going out for under him about five seconds later. Conan spends the next few minutes working the leg. He then whips Mysterio's leg into the mat and then goes for a leg lock. Conan begins to undo Mysterio's mask. He loosens it and then hits a powerbomb. He fully pulls off the mask. Mysterio gets a shot in and then puts the mask back on. Mysterio, of course, is still selling the knee and then doing stupid jumping shit. This just looks silly as he climbs to the top and there's a springboard leg drop. He lands the move and then just flings himself in the air in pain, which just looks ridiculous. Conan basically ties Mysterio's legs up and sits on him. Mysterio goes for a roll-up and Conan kicks out. Mysterio attempts to climb to the top. He gets there eventually. He comes off to the top. Conan catches him, resets, and it's a lovely spike DDT. Conan puts in a sitting clove leaf of sorts, and Mysterio submits. Eric. Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> where to start? So I think if it wasn't Rey Mysterio, it would have been you know a fine psychology, fine match and everything, I guess. Selling a knee injury, pressure on the knee. But you have a guy... In Rey Mysterio, who's uh, known for doing uh, just a bunch of flippy shit, and that's why the crowd loves him, and he's super over, and you bring him back, and he can't do any of that stuff. He's not a very good technical wrestler. He's not a very good ring psychologist. He can't do anything but the stuff he can do, uh, and he can't do it. So he's in there with Conan, who's not a very good wrestler. He's a very good agent and a very good manager of careers and things like that, but him, he himself is not a good wrestler. So you put a guy who 
is a good wrestler when he can do the things he can do versus a guy, but he can't against a guy who's not a good wrestler in a match that goes over 10 minutes with absolutely no flow, psychology, or structure, or anything other than reselling a knee injury for 10 minutes. This is probably the worst, uh, definitely the worst Rey Mysterio match I've seen uh, in WCW, and it might be one of the worst matches in WCW just for the fact that it went 10 minutes. It should have been a three- or four-minute match. You could have had the same psychological arc they wanted to do, and it just died, killed the crowd, and I don't think they ever got him back. No. What taping match was us, Bob? <laughs> well, in name, it was the Mexican death match. Right. Other than the fact that we had two South Americans in it, what was the death match kind of factor? <laughs> That's my biggest gripe of it. I mean, if you're going to what, call Sohom that. What, 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 all forms of storytelling died during this match, didn't they? I mean, that's true. close enough. Wasn't the referee counting them out to it multiple points throughout the match? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Who would have thought it was Landstrom that came in with the positives in this one? Eh? Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. That, that, that wasn't a positive, that was an observation. Well, Let's look at that. I'm maybe clutching, but um, I, I really like these two. I mean, Conan isn't a great wrestler, Tennessee, and I never really has been, but I, I do like the character, as Eric says, he is good at what he does. Um, it's just a fact that the, the best stuff that he does shouldn't really be seen on TV, which is why the best stuff he does isn't on TV. Um, when it comes to wrestling time, if you stick him in there with somebody that can do the shit that Mysterio Jr. can do, then it's good. But when the story is that he can't, and in real life it is reflected in that, that he can't, you, you kind of get stuck with this, where you can see shoving the gimmick on it, what they tried to do, but when they'd never done anything along the lines of the gimmick, it, it kills what was already dead. Um, I, I like the fact that Conan can go in there and work with the luchas because there isn't really a lot of guys on a, a North American TV output that can, but it's just it's a clash of styles that just did not work. When you know that these two know each other as well as they do, it kind of makes you worry about what are they going to do when when that story's there with Mysterio and in the leg and he can't take it and he's in there with other people, it makes you wonder kind of what Conan's Conan's position is when he's got somebody that he knows as well and he can't drag a good match out of it. Um, the mask bot was decent enough in the middle. It was nice. They actually kind of, for a production point of view, kind of nailed that because when you're losing the mask and you don't want to show his face, they actually did cover it well, which WCW has nearly really got a a great they, they managed to cover going. it well with a close-up. Which was yeah. always well, they cut to a camera on the apron, mm. and the camera managed to get between Conan and Mysterio. It's phenomenal yeah, work. They've done incredibly well, which is for WCW, when's the last time we actually praised their production values, which is, again, another slight positive, but for the, the match itself, it, it just it didn't work. Um, the, the main re- the main reason you put Rey Mysterio Jr. in front of a TV camera is to show them Rey Mysterio Jr., who on his day is impeccable, and some of the stuff that he does and the age that he is makes you wonder where he's going to be in a couple of years. But when you when you put them in a match like this, I just don't think it did anybody any favours. Um, Conan was never coming in looking like I don't know, looking like a Bret Hart or a, or a Shawn Michaels, but um, he certainly didn't go out looking like it. Mysterio lost a lot of stock, I would say, in this, whether it's 
whether it's through booting or whether it's just through circumstance with the knee, um, and then the, the end and just having Ray Tarp out was a bit strange because you would kind of hope that he would get his come up at this point, especially after what we've seen in the nitro with the the crutches kind of getting used and then Conan lying down. But for for two guys that I really liked, it just it did not it did not come across well in a match. And say for the the kind of good feeling that you had going in, you kind of even for me lost that by the end of this. I don't know in four years doing this, I've seen a more ridiculous sight than Rey Mysterio selling a somewhat legitimate knee injury than going to the apron, springboarding off of the top and landing some form of leg drop, and then jumping backwards and squealing in pain and clutching his injured knee. I don't think I've ever seen anything look more stupid. Like this was, this was dumb babyface of dumb babyface. This was like the square root of that problem. Like, I mean, you know, Mysterio's knee is injured, so his solution is to attack Conan with moves that injure his knee even more. Like, if that's not dumb babyface, I don't know what is. Um, the psychologist match was all over the place. It otherwise wasn't that bad. Um, you know, they told a reasonably sound story as the Mysterio goes in injured and Conan just beats him. It's the kind of thing that should happen more often. Um, but to me, like, the Mysterio should go, well, shit, my knee can't hold up here. I'm going to have to find a different way of winning, not let's do a lot of dumb shit with my knee that makes it even worse. Just looks stupid. Um, and the whole, you know... Uh, you know, also, I, I know their marketing committee is not their booking committee. I get that. But there is there is a very good understanding of how Marshall Rey Mysterio could be from people within WCW. The problem is those people aren't the guys that are making the decision about what happens on screen. Like, Rey Mysterio gained nothing from this. The show gained nothing from him being in the spot. Um, and Mysterio loses again. Like, you know, this guy has so much upside. You know, whether he could stand you know, opposite Hogan, I don't know. This guy has so much potential upside. You just stick him out there in shitty lower carb matches doing stupid stuff. Um, this is one of Conan's better matches, which is one of the few things I've ever heard me <laughs> praise him about. But that says very, very little. It's the kind of match that suited Conan's style in that he can, when he's on top, he's not that bad. I, I don't know. I, yeah, just the, the, the Mysterio jumping back in agony, having landed that leg drop is... Yeah, that that visual will take some topping in terms of what the fuck am I watching? But there we go. Speaking of what the fuck am I watching? Next up, it's Steve Mongo, but Michael and Chris Benoit versus Jeff Jarrett and Dean Malenko with Deborah. But Michael Jarrett bizarrely wants to fight Benoit and not Mongo. He starts at an arm drag, and to be fair, it's quite nice. Malenko and Benoit reprise their match here from last year. Malenko gets Benoit in a wheelbarrow. Benoit vaults out into an arm drag. Mongo floors Malenko. We quickly get back to Malenko versus Benoit. Mongo hits the side style on Malenko it's all horsemen so far Jarrett runs for a fight from Mongo Malenko dodges a three point stance and tags in Jarrett himself Jarrett throws Mongo onto him into a pinning position and then basically clings onto Mongo and ensures that Mongo picks up the three fall Jarrett fucks off, points to his head and the match ends 
doesn't. Apparently, we're still going. Malenko goes for a backslide. He's fighting this two-on-one. Benoit hits a tombstone. That lets out a big roar. Benoit hits a diving headbutt from the top, then tags in Mongo, hits a tombstone of his own. Mongo picks up his second pinfall of the match. Dell. Um, if I thought the first match with two good wrestlers and two duds, then this was certainly up my a level um, when Malenko and Benoit is in you know what you're getting it's going to be great and then Mongo and Jarrett kind of have their to do um, I thought they did actually kind of hide they two um, pretty well I, I really was hoping and praying that they were watching when they were on the apron because they certainly have a lot to learn um, Mongo is improving I would say um, I don't know whether it's just looking back to his at NFL match, you can see that he is actually starting to do something these days for all his faults and for all he should sometimes fuck off back to Turkey, Jeff Jarrett is pretty decent as well when he gets a chance, it's just utterly showing up when you get Malenko and Benoit I mean, I kind of just found myself thinking when I was watching those two that if they don't headline something someday then I think wrestling's pretty much done, but they, they, they tried their best to make us a decent match when they two were in it was good but then you get to the end and then there's the, the you know, what I call it a false finish but I don't know if that's even the term for it but um, obviously Mongo gets the pin because obviously but I don't know Milenko and Benoit were in it so it couldn't have been that bad alright they did announce it as an elimination match but if you weren't paying attention blinking you'll miss it um, ah that explains that, but then, right, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, good to see Mongo get a clean win over Jarrett. Um, that'll continue his build. Um, and then, uh, no, uh, this was awful. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really have much to add over what, what Dell just said. The focus that needs to be on Benoit and Malenko. The problem is Malenko's just so, such a nothing, you know, before the bell rings. Once the bell rings, he's a killer. It's awesome. Uh, but, and they could really play up. You know, almost like a, as they do, like a, a almost a shoot fighter gimmick for him uh, because he is so ruthless. But I think the idea of putting him with Jared is to just give him some color, just to give him some type of identity outside the ring because he doesn't have it. Uh, it's not working. Jared is just Jared's got go away. He he's nobody. Nobody wants to see him. Uh, and McMichael, you know, he is he is growing, but his his role, as I'll say again, his role is best served in an enforcer role where he's not wrestling every night, where he comes in almost like a 911 or comes in as somebody who can add that extra oomph to a team, not as somebody who the team has to rely on day in, day out, because he can't be carried by everybody. And he's pretty much gotten lucky the last two months to have great matches with uh, two subpar wrestlers or football players and Kevin Green and Jeff Jarrett. And this just shows that as much as he can improve, he's never going to be a guy that they should rely on to, to carry or even be a participant in a pay-per-view match uh, every month. So let's get, get going with Benoit and Malenko and uh, put Mongo and Jarrett uh, down the card. Uh, just a reminder that the guy that Ric Flair endorsed less than a year ago is scared in ring of Steve Mongo <laughs> McMichael. I mean, you know, storyline that makes sense where you would rather face Chris Benoit than anyone else 
is a will be a cold day in hell when that happens. Right. Um, and this didn't make sense either. Okay, fair enough. It was an elimination match. It'll be the first elimination match like I feel like they've ever done. Um, it doesn't feel like they do very often, and they kept, except felt like they kept this one quiet. That at least explains that. But yeah, Jarrett just buggering off, and then you know, I guess it made sense. It's just you know. Whatever. Um, Surely the only story is when you've got an elimination match with Jeff Jarrett and Mongo with Michael and let the two of them have a fucking ruckus. They get split yeah. off, they get double DQ, boom, we've got Benoit and Malenko and we'll be talking about a very different match. Uh, yeah. Give him the book. Give him the book, folks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I value Dell's health over giving him the WCW book the way things are right now. But uh, yes, a much better idea. Next up, it's Chris Jericho versus Alex Wright for the Cruiserweight title. It's not clear whether the crowd are pro-Jericho or just anti-Wright. Wright is wearing a bright pink, uh, bright pink, bright lime green tights. Get a working of arms. Wright goes back for the headlock. The crowd are into this as Wright argues with Mark Curtis. Wright gets drop kicked to the floor as the engines rev up. Jericho hits a body slam on the platform. Wright gets some good air as Jericho flings him from the top. Wright rolls through, but Jericho holds on to an arm submission. The crowd are quieting down a little bit. Wright comes off of the top and stomps on Jericho's leg. Jericho hits a trio of corner clotheslines and hits a line stop. Wright spins out of a waist lock. Jericho rolls into a pin for a two. Wright rolls into a pin, grabs a piece of the tights, and wins the match. Eric? I think this was every Chris Jericho match. You know, it's fine, I guess, with nothing memorable. Uh, both these guys are, are just fine, uh, but they don't. Neither of them do anything that is is anything uh, to take note of between the ring. They're just very good at wrestling a generic uh, kind of smallish man match. Uh, so no, this was just a, a, a zero match. That I guess was technically fine. They didn't have any uh, notable errors or anything like that. But it was just weird. The best part of the night was Bobby the Brain Heenan. Still occasional, or best part of this match was Bobby the Brain Heenan. Still kind of bringing it every once in a while. Still has that fastball he can deliver every once in a while. Uh, the crowd, right in the middle of uh, a vicious faggot chant uh, to Alex Wright, Brain just quips, well, no doubt the crowd's on Jericho's side. So <laughs> that's about the most entertaining note I took from this match. Otherwise, just kind of a, a, a nothing Chris Jericho match. No. It's hard to argue with them. Um, I have a lot of time for the two of them. I think the two of them could easily be champs of some description in the next couple of years. But um, it, it's just kind of the quintessential decent wee match. It's like it's there. It's not going to cause any offence, but it's not really going to get anybody to buy a ticket. Um, right is clearly a lot better as a baddie than he is a goodie because he clearly always was a baddie. He's just embracing it now. The dancing, even just the, the little things like the luminous tights, just shows that he thinks he has something and he clearly does. And um, Jericho, I just think, is ridiculously mature for his age when he can get kind of young guys like this and get matches at the main wrestles almost as if he's 10 years older than he is. But um, apart from that, it, it really is. They, they did quite well. They matched up quite well. It was a decent wee match, and that's all you can really say about it. Yeah, Jericho needs to find something to, to to break out of this kind of good hand, technically sound, but really, really forgettable role he's in right now. Um, some of it's character, some of it's storyline, some of it's in-ring. Um, but yeah, all of it forgettable. Um, both competent, a competent match, but, you know, I say it's a lot. If this was two years ago, this would probably be quite a standout match. Um, it just isn't anymore. The, the bar's a bit higher than that. Being... being 
decent doesn't mean anything in 1997. You've got to have something more than that. And Jericho doesn't right now. Neither is right. Um, it's just a bad pairing for a title that, in amongst a trio of mid-undercard WCW titles, just doesn't mean anything. Um, that's the big problem they've got. Um, the original plan was that he was going to win the title here. Uh, uh, funnily enough, so they can move right onto a TV title feud, you know, just because you know, it, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's struggled a little bit. Anyway, move on next to Six versus Ric Flair. Six comes off of the top rope, so the shoulder tackle looks pleased with himself. Six charged at Flair in the corner and ends up flying onto the platform to the floor. I said it a lot, but Flair looks old. Six works a chin lock as Flair drops to the mat. Six comes off of the top with a leg drop for a near fall. We go back to a chin lock. I wonder if Flair was hurt or, or is hurt or was hurt coming in. This is very subdued. Flair rallies with a chop block, a figure four, but Six gets to the ropes. Six goes for running something into the corner. Flair gets his leg up, kicking Six in the balls. Flair goes for a pin using the ropes for elevation and wins the match. Dell. I thought this was really good. Um... I kind of like the story coming in here. No, you didn't. I did. This, this, this is the worst Ric Flair match I have ever seen. Oh, come on. That's, nah, I'm not having that. I've this this was really game. bad. Didn't you run for Conan? Well, probably. I, no, this did. was. Nah, you have got to be one of the cool kids and shit and on shit. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I genuinely liked that. I, I, I think... I like the story coming into it. You've got Six as the kind of the mouthy upstart. I mean, he is basically the scrappy dude of this. What is it they're calling themselves now? The Wolf Pack or whatever it is. But um, he's like the young guy coming up. He's not as cool as Scott Hall because very few people are. He's not even as cool as Kevin Nash, which is a bit of an insult I would take in some fields. But he's got a mouth on him. He's took out one of the biggest dogs in the in the company, even going back to the old days before Turner. It's got a good story coming in. It, it almost felt as if it could be a coming out party for him. I think it possibly could have been if it was on a better show. Um, it got a lot of time in it. I think Flair just, even when he doesn't look as if he's quite turned on, so to speak, um, he is just a consummate pro. I think he instantly makes anybody look better than they probably even are when he's in there. It wasn't the best Rick Flair match you'd want to see, but it's it's a pretty decent six match, which I'm, I'm quite happy to watch. Um, I think he's pretty underrated. He's got some there that are just genuinely attractive. I don't know what it is, but um, I, I just thought it was a really good match. It was almost as if it was a bit of a, a flashback to '93 with with Kid and Razor. I thought he got a lot of time in. I thought he looked good. I, I just genuinely thought it was a. Really, I don't know whether it's just because of the show that I'm watching, but I thought it was a really good wee match. All right. I don't think this was a very good match, but I think it was the best match of the night. Um, and, and only because I think six is below average and Ric Flair's below average is still better than everybody else's below average. So when you combine them, they have a crap match against everybody else's crap matches and it's, it's gonna rise to the top by attrition. So, uh, but you're right, Bob. This match just kinda died in the middle. There was five or six minutes of nothing but kinda weird rest holds and you're thinking you got a guy like Waltman who's super athletic and, uh, and could probably just run around Flair for ten minutes and they would have a better match. Um, yeah, so this was this was a match that I think you put on a decent show like uh, like last month or one of the better WCW shows, and it probably comes off a lot worse. But I think compared to the the crap around it, um, it kind of it kind of shined. You know, Bob. The other thing I wanted to bring up real fast and tell you too, we were talking about something uh, on the break, and it just occurred to me that um, 
He shouldn't be six. He should be called the one-two sweet kid. Nice. Yeah. Bamba seems less impressed. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. This is like a no-sell-o-d all over again, isn't it? Um, it's better than that. I'm probably more impressed by that line than I was by the match. Um, I, I can only assume Ric Flair was injured is, is because I've never seen a Ric Flair match this bad. Um, like Flair did nothing. Like, you know, six... You know, okay, six... six you know, it's not like Flair fucked a lot of things up. But, like, there was a lot of six offence... Chin lock, leg drop, no wrong chin lock. Flair hits the chop block, figure four gets broken up, six runs into the corner, and Flair pins him. Flair did nothing. Like, Flair, you know, he did, the, he did the fit where he flops over to the top, I suppose. Um, but there was no fight back, there was no begging off, there was no heel tactics, there was no prancing about. That, you know, like a. You know, it wasn't even like Flair particularly got six over, um, I don't think. Uh, I don't think six was that good. Then again, I'm not the biggest fan of his either. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think it's one of those things that you you only notice. Like, I, I think when the guy really starts to lose it, is is well, let me rephrase that. You only start to notice the guy losing it long after he started losing it, mm. and we're really starting to notice that Ric Flair's lost it now. Like I think that's become very, very apparent. You know, it's 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 you know he's still it's it's like the it's the baseball reference you made, Eric, about Heenan. Like Flair's still capable occasionally of hitting those heights. Like a couple of months ago or May, whenever it was, he had that really, really good main event. A lot of that was just heat. Yeah. But yeah. Occasionally, he's still capable of getting us back there, but those those spikes are, are fewer and further between. Um. And, and now his his batting average is just declining, and Flair is just declining as a performer. Um, you know, I don't know whether you know twenty five years of bumps on your body are going to do that. You know, it's just, you know, it's it's one of those things like Ric Flair doesn't take a back bump anymore because of the plane crash, which means every time he takes a back body drop, he kind of takes it on his side, which looks really horrendous. Um, you know, and it's just Flair slipping down the card now, and it's. You know, like I, I, to me, Flair's still an attraction, but we now know that he's falling off, um, and it's just where he ends up. But I, I'm not sure you could. All right, you probably could put Flair in a main event drawing spot again, but I don't think you could do it consistently. Um, and that's where we're at right now, and it's a little bit of a shame. We're watching Flair on the downturn, but now this is just a bad match for me. I, I, I can't. You know, maybe six got over, but I don't think he did. Like, I don't know that too big long chin locks really get someone over. I don't think it really got him over to the extent that, as I said in the, the 93 flashback with Scott Hall, but dare I say that Ric Flair in 1997 isn't Scott Hall in 1993. Um, I, I think it's just how deep you are. Look at this from a storytelling point of view. I mean, I'm quite happy to go Shane Douglas and Pitbull on this, where it's, you could look at the underlying story. It's an old dog. He's kind of... Get bitten by a bitten by a, a younger kind of hungrier dog, and what he has, he's he's realising that he's on his way out, and he's just kind of he's there, but he's not firing through the greatest hits anymore. You're not getting the big pan and shot coming up to him at the '92 Rumble when he's entering the ring. It's a different Ric Flair that we're seeing these days. Whether they've got the whether they've got the gumption to tell that story, and that it's the old dog on his way out, and he's going to be kind of getting attacked by these younger this younger pack for wanting a better term. 
I mean, you could tell that story whether that's where they're going with it. I don't quite know. It might just be that Ric Flair just had a couple of bottles too much last night and just doesn't really like the look of Six and doesn't really like the look of him taking his spot. But I think there's a story to be told here. But as I said, and Landstrom said as well, I think it's more just the fact that this was a decent wee match and a, and a shower of shit, really. Um, they make it look a wee bit better, but maybe I'm just being the eternal optimist that I'm renowned for. But we can't call him old. Anyway. Move on. Kurt Heading versus Darn Dallas Page is up next. Page get, goes out to Heading before the match starts, but unloads. Uh, sorry, sorry again. Before the match starts, but Kurt blocks his path to the ring. Page unloads in the corner. We're getting the dusk, low light part of the evening. Page goes to the top. Heading crotches him. Heading goes out to Page's knee. The engines rev up as Shivoni says fans usually clap and cheer when they want to make noise, but tonight it's engines revving. So it's Heenan says, you know why that is, Tony? It's because they're not allowed to bring motorcycles into the building. Still got it. Still got it. As you saw last year, the fans... He delivered it better than I did, admittedly. Uh, the fans of Boys just from Opportunity Storyline aware. Not sure they know either guy here. They must reckon the fans were, 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 were kind of more... Storyline aware than I did. We'll discuss that in a minute. Um, we get a ref bump. Henny hits the perfect plex. The announcers do their best not to call it that, and Page kicks out. We go to the wide angle as Page is cut from a turnbuckle shot heavily on his forehead. Page goes to the power bomb. Henning kicks the ref as he goes up for the move. Flair runs out and just runs straight into a diamond cutter. Henning hits another. The ref slowly comes to, and Henning wins the match. I think it's quite hard to see from that. Far away, Eric. Uh, the movie Men in Black, where the uh, alien takes the skin of the farmer, and it kind of looks like the guy, but he looks a little more ragged, and skin doesn't quite look right, and he moves a little bit slower, and his, his voice isn't even quite the same. I think that same thing happened to, to Mr. Perfect, because who the fuck is this guy? Uh, he's so slow. He's so he's clearly lost his step, and it's just it's so bad because this he tries to do those bumps, he tries to do those flippy bumps over the corner, and and it just looks bad. He looks so slow. And it, it's just, I get putting him against DDP, but DDP is the guy on the rise, and he just feels sad of losing to a guy like Hennig in a match booked this poorly. I, I don't really have a lot to say about this match because it was so bad. Just, I don't know what they're doing here. Uh, but it's it just, watching putting Hennig out on an island like this and watching him, him uh, sink is it's just too bad. No. I kind of feel bad that there's a film reference been dropped that I've not seen, so I kind of feel bad that I've never seen Men in Black, but never mind. Um, Page, Page and Savage really worked well, and Savage is older, and Savage isn't doing what Savage could do 10 years ago, but Page still turned up, and it was a really good match. When you see him with Kurt Hennig, who admittedly is one of my favourites ever, and I think if he'd have retired when he retired, or seemingly retired kind of what, four or five years ago, it would uh, it would have kind of saved us seeing this, even just the little things that I'm coming out to, what the fuck is that music that he comes out, it just doesn't sum up Kurt Hennig, and then you see him when, it's it's nearly like the level he came back to what we've seen with Mysterio earlier when you take out his ability to oversell and bump around about people and just make them look amazing, you kind of lose a lot of the the attraction of Kurt Hennig but in there um, I, I don't know it just didn't seem to click I thought coming in they would certainly match a lot less than what they did but for for miscasting again similar to what we had Mysterio with his music Hennig with his it just didn't I don't know I was, I was just expecting a wee bit more I was kind of coming in 
almost down on it, thinking I, I can't see these two wanting a good match. And it, it was slightly better than I worried it would be, but I was hoping it would be a lot better. Um, I think a lot of it's to do with perfect ageing. He is still good for what he can do, but I just think it's a sign that maybe that, kind of looking back to, what was it, 91, maybe 90, I think it was 91 at SummerSlam with Brett, it, it kind of looks like that was what we were getting. We weren't seeing perfect, we were seeing Kurt Hennig, which, ironically as, as that is what we're seeing, it, it really felt like that, which isn't a good sign. Um, but still a lot of times for the two guys, I just don't think it really worked, and I don't think much on this show did, but they tried their best. Bob, you say you say it's Flair who's aging, and I think that's true, but I think it's much more apparent that Hennig yeah. has, has... I mean, I think it's night and day comparing Flair and Hennig, even in Flair's uh, current state. Um, yes, but as... Well, yes. Um, the, the, the thing I was going to mention, I was going to bundle it into the thing, was that I, I think some of it is just Henning's very ring rusty. Um, I suspect he'll improve over the next few months as he works a bit more, and there was a thing that apparently he was saying after the the fuck-up during the Pay-Fee match last month that he wasn't, you know, while he was in shape, he wasn't ring-ready. So when he went to do the move that concluded the match, he wasn't really used to how where the ropes were or how taut they were or something like that, so he couldn't take the bump properly, um, which didn't help. But yeah, like, Henning's half a step off. Page isn't good enough to cover for someone who's half a step off. And they just got a few things wrong here. Nothing really lined up. Apparently, the ref bump, you know, the, the ref wore on there. Um, you know, whether that was deliberate or not, I don't know. Whether that was a a planned bump that just kind of connected too well, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but yeah, this just didn't click. Like, you know, Henning's a weird character. Like, I don't know whether he's a heel or a face. I know that's the point, but it doesn't really help. Like, I don't know, you know, because some people know who he is, a lot of people don't. Um, you know, he comes in as this sort of name, but as I said last month, this sort of name that we can't really actually mention. What is Kurt Henning if he's not, if he can't be Mr. Perfect? Well, he's just a guy, um, which is a problem. And Henning at 60%, which is kind of where he is right now, with Don Dallas Page, who's good but no better, in a match doesn't quite click, and then you get the thing where, you know, it seemed like, oh, there was some doubts about it, it seemed like Paige just whacked his forehead on the exposed turnbuckle and cut himself open. So they cut to the the, 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 the wide-angle shot, which doesn't help either. Um, nothing's clicking here. Dal, any more? Um, I think that's probably the fairest way to sum it up. There's no clicking, but I think it's just cut hips that are clicking a wee bit these days. All right. Just as, you know, Dell. I think Dell mentioned the, even the music that they've got for Hennig is doesn't quite fit, and it's just this. We say it every time: this damn attention to detail. You've got a guy who's not what he once was between the ropes, and you can mask that by having a guy who you present between the bells as a credible challenger, package him up really well, make him seem credible. But they've done nothing to make the person outside of the ring stand out as any sort of credible threat or challenger or believable anything. So you have a guy who doesn't even have the outside of the ring presence that Mr. Perfect did, although they could certainly do that and, and, and make up a little bit for his deficiencies in the ring. So they're just doing nothing to help Hennig um, uh, move beyond his uh, his current state. Gene Oakland advertised the hotline plugs and they'll reveal who Raven's first opponent will be. Has he even got a contract yet? Dell, have I missed that storyline step yet? 
as far as I know, we're watching the Nitros. It's just the the storyline stuff with Stevie. Stevie's basically kind of sitting in the Citizens Advice Bureau every week and then just trying to draw up his end contract with a, a crayon and a bit of paper. But um, as far as I know, he's not signed. He's just, with what we see in TV, a, a kind of random fan that just does a good Kurt Cobain impression. Maybe they could kill two birds with one stone and have J.J. Dillon offer Sting a match with Raven and they could both <laughs> sign a contract. That would be, be a great way of introducing Raven. Sting says, I don't want Six, I don't want Henny. Yeah, I'll take Raven. Raven's as batshit crazy as I am. Like, that would be a great way of introducing him. Fuck you sell it with the two of them, the two of them's outsiders, the two of them are kind of lost souls from a bygone era. The two of them match up pretty well. It could be a decent team, it could be a decent match. I don't know. There's nothing in it. Far too logical for WCW. Move on next to Randy Savage versus the Giant. The engines are alive as Giant holds the ring position with Savage on the platform. Giant then inexplicably, inexplicably gets distracted by the ref as Savage storms in and goes for a body slam, but he collapses under the weight. Savage goes after Giant's knee. He then does the whole knocking Giant off his feet spot. Goes to the top, goes for a crossbody and takes Giant down. Giant gets up after the kick out, hits a choke slam and gets the win. Uh, I, I, I think the match was a bit longer than my notes suggest, but uh, uh, would Nobody it be left, fair to, to be honest? Would it be fair to say that not a great deal happened because yeah. that was how I saw it? I mean, I've got a couple, of, a couple of sentences, and mostly it's just. Well, the first one's talking about it's the most obvious I've seen from Giant not having any music. That was the first thing that I wrote about it, but um, it's clearly the shortest match, and I think it maybe went about five or six, and the next one up was top nine, ten, eleven. But it did definitely feel like the quickest match tonight. The, the only thing of any note that I've really got in about it was the the spot for the side of the ring. Giant picks up Savage and throws him from the floor into the ring, but over the top rope. I think he should be doing a lot more of that, just to kind of try and build how big that guy is. Um, I can't even remember seeing it, but again, apart from that, there really wasn't, there really wasn't much to us. The crowd did their best out because they've been pretty decent on night, but I think we've certainly hurt the... First, the show not being the greatest to start with, we've certainly hurt the mid-40s. Rick Flair, peak of the night, I would say, and it's downhill for here. Eric? Yeah, I don't think this was a very good match at all, but I think it, it, I think it was the only match of the night that was an appropriate length and was uh, logically booked. I don't, you know, you wouldn't want the Giants to go 15 or 20 minutes against anybody. And Savage, at this point, I don't think anybody considers him a credible challenger to the Giants. So for a match to go, I think it went about six minutes. Uh, Giant gets a clean win, slow, you know, big, big hitting action, not a lot of transitional moves. Um, Savage kind of ran around the Giant for a while. Got enough of an offense in to make you realize that Savage is still a credible dude. But, yeah, I think this was the only match of the night that made any sense, booking-wise, even if it wasn't particularly memorable, because the Giant should be beating people in five minutes who aren't Hogan or Sting at this point. Yeah, um, like a big match on paper, but just didn't carry through. Um, I wasn't quite sure what the point was. Uh, The build wasn't particularly strong either. And the match was a bit one-dimensional, but then again, Giant won cleanly. Like it was a, it's also one of those things. Like I guess in a way, like so. I was, yeah, I'll, I'll take a clean loss if if the match is so forgettable that nobody remembers it. I, yeah, I suppose. Well, and if you're but, savage, if you're going to lose, make it make the night short so he can get back. Uh, you know, get get at the, get the hell out of Sturgis. Yeah. Yeah, good idea that. Next up, it's the outsiders, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash versus the Steiner brothers, Scott and Rick with Ted DiBiase for the WCW Tag Team titles. Well, presumably, I don't know, but I'm guessing there's at least four more steps for the Steiners going to win the titles. It's as good as dark now. The Scots lock up. Hall shoves Scott 
Scott shoves Hall. Hall flips a two-pick at Scott, and Scott shoves him back. Hall hits a backdrop, then goes for an arm. The Steiners clear the ring, which whips up the crowd. Rick starts running around mid-ring. Hall tags in Nash. Scott levels Hall off of the mat, and then turns around, and Nash flattens him with a great big boot. Hall hits a choke slam, then a fallaway slam on Scott. Hall puts in an abdominal stretch and gets some leverage assistance from Nash. Nash goes after Rick on the platform and Hall goes after Scott in the middle of the ring. Scott hits an electric chair on Hall as he looks to tag in Rick, but Nash cuts him off. Scott drops Hall. Scott drops Nash over the top rope, goes to the tag game, but Hall charges over and cuts him off. With the ref distracted, Hall goes to the outside edge, but Rick dives in the ring and floors Hall. Scott hits a belly-to-belly and might finally be able to make a tag which he finally does. We, we set for an electric chair double team. Uh, Scott was up very, very quickly. They go for a pin. Nash pulls the ref out of the ring, and so Patrick calls for the bell. The Steiners look ecstatic. and I think I know where this is going. Patrick <laughs> didn't call for the victory. He called for the DQ, so the Steiners don't win the tag titles. And them and DBRC look very pissed off indeed. Eric? It's too bad because this was this is not a bad tag team match uh, until the last thirty seconds. It was a standard. I think I think at this point, Hall and Nash are kind of going through the motions when it comes to these tag team matches. They need to be moved apart and given more to do. Uh, they're both too good and have too much star power to uh, to be a tag team. Uh, and the Steiners still got it, uh, but they're definitely um, kind of coming up. It's kind of a theme of the show. They're kind of approaching that that crest of the hill. You can tell, um, and it's just fine match until the very end, and then you get what we has come. We've become accustomed to this match should have taken place on an average nitro, where you get the Steiners just not winning the belts. They kind of look like idiots at the end. Uh, I don't think their reaction when they found out they didn't win the title was was very strong. It's just kind of like, yeah, we didn't win again. Cool. Um, I I just. It's so it's so disheartening to to watch the storyline and to see what the natural finish would have been here. I mean, they got huge WrestleMania pyro at the beginning of this match, and then they win by disqualification. It's just you know Lex Luger all over again. Um, and at, w- at what point do we lose patience at, with this storyline, waiting for it to progress um, for the Steiners to finally? get the gold I think it, this was the time to do it and I don't think having successive title changes would have mattered um, it just you know do it get it done and, and move forward and this was the time to do it no I have a couple of positives of a couple of negatives um, the first thing that I noticed about this match is I am almost like Peter Kimber in this show one of the first things you see when the outsiders come out is there's a girl in the front row flashes a bra at them now that's a sign for me that that's where your money is because if you've got girls at a wrestling show to start with, you then saw them right. When you're getting them flashing themselves at the outsiders, you know that's where the money is because they're here to see them, and if they're here to see them and they're on the card, they're going to come back. They're not going to come back themselves because wrestling fans are dicks, and they're probably going to bring their man with them. So <laughs> you're, you're instantly selling two tickets when you would maybe have sold one. That's one positive. Another positive is the night looks pretty good. I don't like Sturgis, I don't like the show, I don't see what it brings to business, but the night looks pretty good. What happens before the night comes, pretty much like we've spoke about at least two or three times a night, you get twilight. We've got people coming to the twilight of their careers. The Steiners are pretty much getting there with the looks of it, but 
the issue that I've got and kind of coming on to the negatives is as much as I don't want to say it because they're probably the most cool thing about this product at the minute is the outsiders where you feel they've came into this place and they could make a difference. They really did what 13, 14 months ago, but it kind of feels like instead of them coming in and as they do with their interviews, take the piss out of the old guys and kind of branching away from Hogan these days and making their own wolf pack, they feel as if they should be taking, to use that phrase, the brass ring, and it kind of feels as if they've just walked into the retirement home, but instead of getting the bodies out there that they wanted, they kind of feel as if they're becoming another one of the old bodies that's there, where they're 10, 15, sometimes even 20 years younger than the guys that they're in there with, but they just don't, they don't have that fire, or they don't have that edge, as cool as Scott Hall is, as big as Kevin Nash is, they should be running this place, but they kind of just feel as if they're comfortable, and they're happy in their comfort zone, with the contracts that they've got, and the favoured nation clauses, and being able to book a match on the fly, on that day, just saying, ah, well, maybe we should just keep these belts, and it, it doesn't feel as if, they've either got the impetus to go to the next level or anybody in the company has got the impetus to make them go to the next level. And um, even for WCW, the end of it, that was one ropey finish. (laughs) You've got D.P. Aussie there, who, as strange a fit as he felt like, and as I said in the Nitro review, this is what he really felt, the strange fit. How the fuck could Teddy D.P. even contemplate the fact that the Steiners had won the belts? How then could the Steiners even think that they'd won the belts? And it's just, you can tell it was something that was rushed. It was like, kind of, you get left in, the missus goes away for a, a hen weekend, and then she comes back and you've not done anything in the house. You've not washed the dishes, you've not hoovered the carpets. You've no Do you speak your experience, Adele? Pretty much. Right. But you can tell I'm a, you can tell I'm a divorcee. But she comes back for the weekend, you've not done anything, so you kind of just fuck shit in the dishwasher and then maybe hoover one carpet and hope that you notice that it's fine. But it, that's how the match felt to me, but they're just kind of, right, what are we going to do? Ah, we'll just do that, right, fuck it, get the beers out. And that's, I don't know, it, it just, I don't know why this is my bitterness about the full show coming out in this one match, but um, it, it just feels as if it was phoned in, it's... And there were guys that are phoning it in, the company's phoning it in, and it's just not looking good for where this company's going. Considering the ratings wins that they've been having in the last few months, it kind of feels as if not just the wheels falling off, but they know the wheels fell off and they're just keeping driving with three. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's Sorry if I sounded bitter there, but it did just, I don't know, it's getting to me. Well, if, if, if they were driving with three wheels, they'd probably crash like they did six months ago, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that. Uh, yeah, this was actually looking like quite a good match for a while. Um, you know, it was it was the tag team by, by numbers until they just kept not tagging Rick back in, which kind of went so long it sort of worked. Um, and then they kind of rushed the the kind of babyface comeback. And then, God, that finish. Um, I mean, you know, I don't know, like, I, I just don't know, this chase of the style has been going on forever, um, you know, and I'm guessing, like, the, uh, you know, if I'm Hall and Nash, like, I don't, why do I want the tag titles, why do I want to be in this, 
tag division. Like Hulls, now she's stopping and start having a feud with a giant, which would be a lot bigger than anything you can do in the tag team division. And Hall could do anything he likes. You could put Hall against someone like Piper if you wanted to. Um, they're both holding themselves back, let alone everyone else. Just, you know, the time to do this title change was at least a month ago, if not on this night. And now it's like, yeah, I don't know that if the chase concludes for the Steiners next month, whether people won't have given up on it already. Um, March was fine. Steiners were a bit, uh, um, this whole thing was a bit, uh, to be honest, but, but there <laughs> we are. Um, we want to make event. What does Michael Buffer look like? It's Hulk mm. Hogan versus Lex Luger for the WCW World Heavyweight title. Hogan chops Luger in the corner, then goes for a side headlock. Luger locks down Hogan and roars with approval. Luger rallies out of an arm lock. It's methodical, but this feels straight out of 1987 so far. Luger hits a pair of arm drags. Hogan retreats to the platform. This large Hogan sucks chant. The engines fire up and Hogan seems to be engaging the fans a bit more than normal. Moves to the platform, Hogan whacks Luger's head on the steps, then chokes him with an electrical cable. Hogan lands a great shot, he calls him Lex Loser. Shivoni calls Hogan's finishing sequence the leg drop Bigfoot. Hogan puts in the bear hug. Hogan loses the test of strength and decides to leather Luger with a low blow. Hogan hits Luger with the Bigfoot and Luger kicks out. Hogan pops up as the Luger, which takes Hogan by surprise. Luger wants to hit Hogan, but Hogan covers up in the corner and then pokes Luger in the eye. That's straight out of the Ric Flair playbook. Hogan goes to drop the leg, but Luger moves. Luger hits a couple of lariats and outruns Bagwell, Six, Norton and Nash. Nash had drawn the short straw on that one. Luger fights them all off. Out comes a clearly fake sting. Scott Hall thought that's worth. Uh, he trips or hits Luger with a baseball bat as he comes off the ropes. Hogan drops the leg and regains the title. We'll come to the post-match in a bit. Del. What was the finish of the last match? Um, bad. And Ill thought out. And a disqualification. Ill advised. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll not start you off. Um, Depressing. Uh, come on, Bob. Come on. Ill-conceived. Happy place. Happy place. The finish of the last match was a DQ, and there was at least two, maybe three spots in this that could have been a DQ, and it wasn't, which annoyed me. But um, I actually thought for what it's worth, Luger tried his best to get a decent match out of Hulk, and Luger is looking pretty decent these days by Alex Luger admittedly standards um, but it, Hogan's just really brutal to watch for me these days it's like he knows that he's old he knows that he's he's on his way out but he's still the name on the marquee and um, for what we said about Flair earlier on still just consider what he done with six objectionable as that may be look at what, what Hogan's doing and, well, um, I thought Hogan had a better night than Flair I'm not having that but I'll agree to disagree um, but I mean it's it, WCW just do this where they get to a main event spot and it's like everybody's already went home and it's like oh well we better fill it to the 245 just so we don't get fined and um, it, it kind of just felt like that I don't know whether it's just the ending of the, the Nitro compared to the ending of this that done that or, but um, it, it, it just really died midway through it it's never really a burning fire before that and as I say, the, the bits with how it was near disqualification when we'd literally just seen it in the last match, it just it was just a really damp end for me. But what else would you expect for these two? Eric, this match wasn't 
particularly different from their match on Nitro um, from a you know a layout or an execution standpoint. But the more that I think about it, the more that I'm kind of glad that the people that actually paid to watch got to watch the title change and the bums here at Sturgis got to watch this pile of garbage because um, they don't care anyway. Um, yeah, so this is not a classic match by any stretch, but it wasn't bad. It was a pretty standard Hogan match um, like the one on Nitro was. I think the, the only uh, real material difference between the two was the crowd involvement. The crowd on Nitro was super hot and this crowd didn't really care. Match on Nitro was better, but not not to such a degree that you would think that uh, the, the reactions and in our interpretation of what happened would be so different. But I think, you know, the last match was poorly booked uh, to the finish, and this one was too. I, are we still doing the sting? Who's sting? What side is sting on thing? I mean, we've got a guy who's being offered a contract to wrestle in WCW, so they clearly don't think sting's uh, on the NWO side anymore, but we're still doing the, oh, there's sting in a mask finish. It's just insulting, and it's insulting the hot shot of title back and forth like this to the fans because all the goodwill you build up on Nitro, even to those of us who are skeptical that Nitro will ever have a clean finish now, they do a clean finish on Nitro, but it doesn't mean anything five days later, so why do we care? And so, yeah, hot-shotting this back to Hogan, I, I just get, why not give Luger a month with the belt and have them rematch next month and Hogan win it then just to just to keep some sort of semblance of credibility with your main event scene. Dell talked about all the ridiculous logic holes and the disqualification, and I think just like the two of you, the, the longer we've stayed with this show, the more I am just bitter that I had to even watch it and have my intelligence insulted. So, yeah, I whatever. These guys, who cares? Yeah, the match wasn't necessarily any worse than the one on Monday, and yet it actually was. Um, I think a lot of that is to do with you know what was going on around it in terms of the audience participation. I think a lot of that also just had to do with how it finished. Yeah. Um, you know, Hogan was, you know, basically channeling Flair. I mean, minus the big bumps, this was just Hogan being Ric Flair. I mean, yeah, Hogan's, to a point, always been a heel since he'd been in WCW. Um, but this seems to be one of those. And him and Luger are not a great pairing. Um, you know, they're both they're both quite similar. They've both got similar strengths and similar attributes, but they've both also got similar weaknesses. Um, the match itself was fine, but fuck, I mean, the... You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't... You know, I mean, for, we're going to get to it in a sec. Dennis Rodman was there. Uh, obsessively, just a fan of bikes. So Dennis was was not paid to be there, but he does appear on the show in a minute. And it would have, you know, if they could have convinced him to to come out and help with the finish, that would have made a lot more sense. But it's like, how long has the NWO been in existence now? It's over a year. It was 13 months ago the NWO was formed. And on Monday night, and I talk about earlier in the show about Monday night being the significant moment in terms of the the crowning of Luger and a potential kind of turning point in WCW's relationship with the NWO. And how like, everyone stormed out to celebrate with Luger and this kind of united front and this relief. Like, at least when the heels run out, at least have some bay faces run out and cut them off. And then if you're going to do the fake sting shit, as bad as it was, at least there would have been like, a, you know, some uncertainty thing. But the worst part of all was that earlier in the show, they shot the, the page thing from the wide angle because page got cut. They probably could have done with it here because the real problem was is that Sting comes out and they cut to a real close-up of Scott Hall, who's, who's dressed as Sting. Looks fuck all like Sting. Like, really does. It's very obviously a mask. It looks nothing like Sting. The hair's completely different, etc., etc. And the announcers think, oh my God, it's Sting. 
And I'm just like, oh, you just killed the credibility of this. Like, this is a title change. This is an important moment. And like, you know, and what does it matter if it's Sting? Like, couldn't it have just been Scott Hall with a bat? Like, wouldn't that have been more sense? Like, if you want to, if you want to set up Sting against Scott Hall, and I don't particularly know why Sting needs to reject everyone to get to Hogan. I think it would make more sense if they're going to do Hogan and Piper at Halloween Havoc, why they couldn't do Sting against Scott Hall. Have Sting mow through Scott Hall and then set up the match and uh, set up the match at, uh, at Starcade in December. Like, why don't you just Scott Hall come out and hit take out Luger with Sting's signature weapon and tease that going forward? But instead, we get. We pretend it's Sting, and the announcers think it's Sting. And it's like, it's just all the things that they, all the, I don't want to say goodwill, but all the opportunity I felt like they built up on the Monday. It just completely undid five days later. And it's like, oh, that was all I could watch. I like, oh, that's it. You know, we're, we're back to Hogan, status quo, money didn't matter, Luna's run didn't matter, etc., etc. And it's just so bad. I mean, Eric, what is, what is it? We'll get to the post-match in a minute. What does this say for WCW going forward? Because the, the rationale will be, and there's a lot to this, the Hogan versus Sting, as big as it will be, will be much bigger with the title. And they would have to give Hogan the title belt back, one to do a match against Piper in October that they're playing, and two to do one against Sting in December that they're planning. Um, so, you know, it's not like Luger's win on Monday was ever going to be the start of this big, long title reign. But I feel like it could have been the start of a presentation change in terms of how the NWO treat results, good and bad, and how WCW perceives themselves. And yet what this feels like is just a complete undoing of what they did on the Monday. And that, I think, is bad. Yeah, fool me once, fool me twice. <laughs> you know, you wonder... Uh, it's just been a it, WCW managed to turn in what started as a very good week to a very bad week in terms of uh, being able to trust product as as a consumer and as a fan because all that cool stuff that happened on Monday doesn't matter. So why should I watch on Mondays or or why should I get invested in the Steiners or why should I get invested in in Luger's the champion? What if I'm one of these people that's been trying to get Luger over for nine months since World War Three? If I'm a Luger fan and he just gets you know. I, he just gets jobbed out like this five days later, it's, and it looks like an idiot doing it because he apparently has no friends uh, in the back. Then, then why do I care? Why should I continue to root for this guy? So, yeah, I, I, I'm just really struggling right now with I'm not, you know, I'm not the world's biggest WCW fan to start, and trying to stick with it while this shit's going on is really tough because, you know, you don't take wrestling seriously as something that is, is real life and these are real people. It's, it's a scripted television show, but I don't watch television shows that are poorly scripted and poorly put together and insulted to the audience, so why should I watch this one? And so that's what I'm having a hard time with. Is it, It's so it's not easy to book a wrestling show, but it's I think it's easy to book a wrestling show better than this. Um, and so I said it earlier, have, have Luger hold it for a month. There's no reason why they couldn't have a one-on-one match at Fall Brawl and have War Games. Um, you've got that pay-per-view coming up, just so as not to so as not to immediately insult your fan base and say, "Oh, gotcha." Um, have Luger hold it for a couple of weeks at least, and you can still have Hogan and Sting at some point down the road. Um, but yeah, this is just mm. we'll see where it goes because I'm always kind of like Dell at the end of the day. I'm always kind of an optimist with this stuff, but I this is this is really bad in your top two programs when you just have baby faces that keep getting. Uh, with, with the booking like this. It's just it's really bad. Though? Again, it's hard to argue with Lance. Um, 
I think something that the WCW almost nearly gets a buy for we was kind of expecting this show now we had it last year we got it this year hopefully this will maybe be the last one but they like these big images of the the outside crowds and you've got the bikes there they they don't make money off this gate they don't make money building the pay-per-views that inevitably end damp and then you have to build the audience again for the next three, four, whatever weeks. I mean, this month's obviously a bit different as we'll come on to in volume two. But when you're, when you're essentially building a crowd to disappointment, it's a very hard thing to sell. And when you're patting in crowds that don't pay to get there, you don't make any money. And you're not going to make any money when people tune in every month, get a damn pen to a show, and then they get good stuff on TV to get them there. Because you kind of need... It's almost a worrying precedent. When we look back at, what, four or five days previous, you're showing three hours of live TV that comes at a cost. You're putting up a roster that costs more money because there's more appearance fees. And then when you're building into a show that, one, you don't make any money on, and two, you don't leave anybody with any kind of investment in, as much as it is just a TV show and there's more important things going on in the world, you, you kind of want a bit of satisfaction for watching something because for people listening to us this month, you're going to get three, four hours of WCW. For people watching it, you're already starting off the first week of the month with three hours of TV, then going into a pay-per-view, then going to have another couple of weeks of TV, then having a clash. It's a lot of time to make or break a fan base and it's almost as if they're kind of trying to Spite themselves with the rate and success that they're having, having this kind of month where it's off to a pretty poor start, and we've still got another three, four weeks yet left. Um, it's just really hard to kind of get invested, and as as much as we try to be positive about it, it's hard not to get yourself caught up in it and kind of brought down with it because they kind of seem almost set on self sabotage. Yeah, um, you know it's it. It's just strange. Like I, I've spoken before about how Hogan's shock off losses before, and on Monday it felt like for the first time he didn't. But then you get to this, and you're like, ah, it's just a long con. He shakes off the loss by just winning it back, and the loss not mattering. And then he'll come up the following night and pretend nothing ever happened. And it's just like, oh. And I know they got bigger fish to fry. I know Luger's not priority number one, but it's just. There are ways and means of doing this that that could be far more productive for everyone. And I think Luger having the title for, you know, four, six weeks, something like that, um, would have been good. And then, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe have, if you want to do the whole Sting thing, maybe have the real Sting cost Luger. Um, that would be a hell of a way of getting the title back onto Hogan. Sting can go back into Recluse. Um, you do Sting versus Hogan, and then Sting wins the title, and then you can get the Sting versus Luger. Maybe do that. I don't know whether that's a great idea, but it's a thought. Um, it's just all weird. You know, it's Hogan turns up, and Hogan's the law over everyone else, and the, the, one of the big stories this month is just how, you know, Terry Taylor's the booker, but being the booker means you do all the work, you get all the shit, and then ultimately nothing what he does actually matters, because it, it's all down to people that have got control over their own stuff above and beyond what you say. You do all the hard work, you get none of the credit and all of the blame. Well, good luck with that. Anyway, 
So you get the Perth match angle. The original plan was they were meant to be um, they were meant to do this whole thing in the ring after the show. But unfortunately, the big problem that WCW is that WCW have one of is that they have not discouraged people throwing shit into the ring post match. Um, this all sort of started a year ago when the NWO formed, and they never really stamped it out. Um, and so, unfortunately, whereas in you know, as Heenan says, you know, inside there's no motorcycles, there's also no rocks. So inside, when they're in a building, when people throw shit, they throw bottles and they throw you know liquid and you know garbage wrappers and stuff like that. Uh, when they're outside, they throw rocks. Um, and so Hogan mm-hmm. was planning on doing shit and just kind of beeline it to the back as he got hit in the head by something. They cut to the floor later on with Luger being treated for something, and I, you know, it didn't. Luger was kind of down holding his head, which didn't really make sense. I wasn't quite clear if he was selling or not. It wouldn't surprise me if he got hit by something either. So they ended up kind of cutting to the announce team as Hogan fucked off and they treated uh, treated Luger, and they went backstage to do what they were going to do out in the ring. And Dennis Rodman's on screen, which seems really weird. And as they say, Rodman was just there. Rodman was not paid for this appearance. He just happened to be in the area because he's a big fan of bikes, apparently. Um, so this was a freebie for WCW. They put the title belt on Conan's shoulders. We talk about doing damage to the title. That was more than anything else. And then they respray the NWO logo on it. Rodman does that. Um, and that will do that. Um, Del, there's lots of stuff going on post-match. Mm. Um, Dennis Rodman's there, who I've never shied away for saying I think he's one of the coolest guys on the planet, and he's just kind of there backstage, and it's almost as if you just happened to meet him at a Kmart or something. It was just, oh, there's Dennis Rodman. And um, for what we felt was kind of damp in the ring, it, it kind of didn't really get any better after it. When you when you just see, well, if you missed Monday's Nitro, you didn't really miss him because it's back to where it was before. Um, it, it's just really strange because you, you always kind of look at where it's going to go and what's going to happen and we need to tune in next week but you kind of feel as if if you missed Monday as good as Monday was you um, kind of just it's back to the same old same old and it's like how much longer can we drag that out it's a bit worrying really Eric it's weird to end a show with the heel locker room celebrating a title win Um, it this is the second year they've done this too because wasn't it last year where they brought out Beefer and with the birthday cake and Hogan turned – am I on to something there? Like I think that's what happened last year. And, and so two years in a row with this pay-per-view, they end uh, with what essentially is the number one heel celebrating uh, at the expense of uh, you know the what are supposed to be your, your heroes. And it's just weird. And it shows that, like you said – while the the people booking the show have, you know, the pencil, Hogan's got the pen, and it's just, it's bizarre. It's just, this would never happen in the Fed, and this would probably never happen in ECW, because you have people there with strong hands who can control the, uh, those, those above, but here you see Hogan probably saying, hey, here's my buddy Rodman's here, let's go off the show, closing like that, and it just sets a really weird tone, and you kind of wonder, what are the priorities here, and, and who booked this shit? So, yeah, it's just bizarre. It just was was just the, the perfect end of the show, really. Eric, your overall thoughts on the show to score any out of 10? <laughs> uh, the show had no good matches. Uh, it was an inconsequential pay-per-view, even with the, the title change. It devalued Nitro, since they just undid all the stuff from that Nitro 100 episode. Uh, the best match was probably Six versus Flair, but like I said, for no other reason than those guys' 
below average is better than anybody else's below average. Uh, and, and as there is sometimes with WCW shows, on this one there wasn't. There wasn't even anything so bad as to make the show memorable for the wrong reason. It just was an, an inconsequential show, perfectly skippable, uh, two out of ten. So, um, again, it's really, really hard to disagree with Landstrom. It's there, there wasn't anything good. There wasn't anything obscenely bad. Um, a couple of guys in the middle that I really have a lot of time for, but when you have below par matches, they're still below par matches. I mean, the two arguments about wrestling is it's either about the money, which they made fuck all in this, or it's about the wrestling, which there was fuck all in. Um, there was flashes, really, the the Malenko-Benoit stuff. Six Flair was probably the match of the night, but when you have to put in probably before match of the night, it's never really a good sign. Um, it feels inconsequential with, with what happened four or five days before. We kind of feel like we're back to square one, and the only fair way that I can really rate this is if memory serves, I think I gave this, this shit last year two and a half. It was marginally better, so I'll give it a three. Well, I'm in a warm. Uh, this is a really bad show. This was a, you know... So, so offensively bad is at least memorable. This was just dire. Start to finish, front to back, nothing good about it. All that was wrong with WCW was very, very little that was right. Um, I was frequently checking out during this show because it did not hold my attention. It was booked poorly, the action was bad, the setting was bad. Um, they shouldn't have done, they shouldn't have done stage again. Like, you know, I think fair cop for trying it, but I, I think it should have been one and done last year. Um, and lots of things that were wrong with WCW were on show here, um, namely in the final two matches. So I'll give this a 1 out of 10. And that will wrap up at least this part of the uh, WCW section of uh, this month's show. There are two because we've got a, a clash to review. So we'll jump into part number two in a bit. And myself and Dale will take us through uh, the TVs and also the uh, the, the rest of the TVs and also the clash itself. But a big thank you firstly to Dale Muir. Dale, thank you very much. I'd say it's always a pleasure, Bob, but when you get stuck with some of this shit, it's a bit hard at times, but it's still nice to be here. Fingers crossed for part two, but I think my eyes will certainly be when at Philadelphia this month. Fingers crossed for part two. Eric Landstrom, Eric, thank you very much. Uh, happy to be here even for this thing. Yeah, we, uh, it makes the good times worth it when we have to go through the bad. Yes, I it think does. is a, a, a philosopher probably once said in a far more eloquent way than I just did. Eric, I remind people where they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, I'm at Modern Day Lawyer, and uh, go to Patreon. Help us out. Yes, and Adele, you're on Twitter as well. I am indeed, but I was going to plug the Patreon as well if you came in for social media, because I'm not exactly very social. Well, okay, well, there's that. Uh, yeah, since you both mentioned if you would, uh, if you would like to contribute, uh, just say thank you for us going through the highs and lows of wrestling in the mid-90s, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs for five bucks a month. We'll give you early access to shows where possible. Uh, this is going to be another one of those months where I don't think there's going to be much early access, but there we are. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, there is that. We have, uh, it's three volumes for this month, split over four parts. Volume number one takes the WF looking at SummerSlam. This is Volume one, Volume Two, Part One, looking at WCW. We'll go to Volume Two, Part Two for the Clash, and Volume Number Three takes us to ECW, looking at their next pay-per-view. Anyway, reminder, you can find all the information, all the back episodes, all of the blogs on our website. I will update it at some point. So, you know, Eric's got like a Eric wrote a review of the ECW show from June. It's still not up yet, uh, but it will be soon. Uh, amongst other things. So if I say it, I have to do it. So there's always some reverse psychology there. Now um, they know what's going on behind the scenes. Now they know. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, now they know. Things get written and eventually they get put up. I've got, I haven't even put up last month's shows yet. I mean, they're all online, but I haven't put them on the site yet. Um, it's lots of stuff to do. But, yeah, it's uh, been a busy few weeks this, uh, this this side of the line. But, yeah, anyway, that'll do that. I'll be Bob Bamber. This has been Volume Number 2, Part Number 1 of the August 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, 